Well, I guess I get to say good morning again. So good morning. For those of you who had walked in afterwards, Eli, good morning. Christian, good morning. So I'm going to tell you right now, I am super, super nervous to be up here. I get up in front of middle schoolers all the time, but the great piece about middle schoolers and teaching them content is I feel like I really have a great understanding. I'm teaching them how to move a variable from one side of an equation to another. You guys, this is a lot, this is a lot more important. This is a lot bigger. One thing I was made aware of too this week, um, I won't say the name, but it's somebody who's close to me and talks to me on a daily basis. Tells me that I say uh a lot in between when I think because I get nervous, so I use the word uh. So please bear with me if I say uh a ton. Please don't keep a counter. We can do that on the recording later, and uh, we can talk about that afterwards. So a little while back, Daniel said, well, I want you to start preaching. So I said, okay, sounds good. I trust you, Daniel. I don't know why, but I'll trust you. And so he gave me this chapter, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. And I read them, and I said, what the heck? Thank you, first of all, for giving me a really challenging passage. But second of all, I don't know what is being talked about in here. And so what I decided to do was go back and listen to everything that Daniel had spoke on leading up until this point. So thinking and recapping uh, what is going on in the book of Malachi so far. So, so far in Malachi, what we've seen is that the Israelites are not living in accordance to God's will. So God has given them this desire. He's given, this, given them a roadmap, right, that we've seen throughout the Old Testament. How do we live in accordance, to God, or in accordance to God's will? And so far in the book of Malachi, we've seen multiple ways that this is not happening. Some of the examples we see that they have questioned God's character. They have, um, they're uh, divorcing wives because... They were getting old, as we've seen. They were uh, uh, worshiping false gods. There was a lot of stuff that was going on here. And then in the question of God's character, as we saw in last uh, week's sermon, was talking about this idea that the people of Israel wanted judgment to come down. They wanted the people that were not living what they thought in accordance to God's, in accordance to God's will to be... Um, judgment to have, or excuse me, to have judgment brought down upon them. And we know that they did not know what they were asking for. So as we get ahead to this point in chapter three, starting with verse six, verse six is kind of just a continuation of what is happening previously. So in your Bibles, if you have an ESV, you see that chapter six is, or verse six is titled, robbing God. Now, some of the translations that we have, the NASB, they throw verses six and seven up with the previous uh, set of verses. They actually think that verse six and seven is just a continuation of what was being preached there. And I think that there's partial truth to both of these ways of looking at it to say that the great piece is we know that there were not verses, there were not chapters written in original scripture. So it was all meant to flow together, right? So in this way, if we start to think about it this way, we think about these next couple of verses as like a sandwich. They were meant to be kind of like squished in between these two big points. So let's go ahead and let's take a look at verse six and seven. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So when we take a look at this, there's a couple things that kind of come to the forefront when we think about why did God choose this moment to then say this to his people? What was going on? What's the context? Well, I think first we see that we have the Israelites complaining about how God is not doing what he's supposed to be doing, right? He's not holding up his end of the bargain. And that is what the Israelites are um, essentially insinuating in all of the rest of the book with the questions that they have asked so far. So we see that God then is essentially providing them a statement that says, for I, the Lord, do not change. This is also a contradiction, I believe, to what we see with the gods of the time that would have been um, around where what you would have is you would have gods that would get bored. They'd honestly just, like, they, people believed that their gods would get bored with them, and so they would just start punishing them. That's why they had sickness, or that's why they had 
um, you know, famine or whatever it might be. They, God was just, their God was just bored and so decided to change its, you know, their God's mind and wanted to do something else. And so this is kind of this skewed perspective that they were starting to get because of what was happening at the time where they were starting to marry people that believed in different gods, right? So these, these theologies, these different religions were starting to creep in. So they would start to have this understanding of, well, so-and-so's God gets angry. So-and-so God is bored of them. So they have to sacrifice different things. They have to do these different rituals. But God comes out of the gates in verse six and says, for I, the Lord, do not change. And I think that this is really interesting because if you go back to Numbers, I think that's everybody's favorite book, right? You guys all like to read Numbers over and over again, three times? It's fourth, third favorite book? Is that what you're saying? Third favorite book. Numbers. Numbers, okay. <laughs> right behind Leviticus, there we go. But there's some great stuff in Numbers. And one of the things that's tucked in Numbers, verse 20, or excuse me, chapter 23, verse 19, we see the character of God. God is, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he would change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So we see is the true character of God. God is not a man. The men, the people of this time, were creating what they thought God was based upon their own interpretations of how they saw people around them acting. So we see that they did not view God as something higher at this point in time. They were starting to give God characteristics of the people around them and starting to say, well, so-and-so can change their mind or we change our mind. We get, can, we get bored with the situation. We are not content with what is happening. And so we look for other things. So God must do the same thing. But we see that God is different. The God of Israel, the God that is being talked about here, he says that he is not man that he would change his mind. So I think that this is really important for us to take a look at. And then there's that second piece of verse six that says, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And this is a key piece here to take a look at because what we start to understand is that because God is who he is, because he is a God who never changes, who honors his covenant, who honors his essentially agreements that he made with man, they're not consumed. They're not taken away because they couldn't handle God if God decided to change his mind. If God really decided like, hey, you know what? I am kind of tired of what you guys are doing. This would be really bad. This would be really bad for the people. And so I think it's important for us to understand this first and very most important statement that this shapes, I believe, the entire context to which we have been looking through the book of Malachi and we will finish looking through the book of Malachi, that we have a God that does not change. So the problem is we still see a void then. So there's still a problem. So God still tells them, right, that you would be consumed right, if I was a changing God, because there is something happening. There is something going on. And in verse seven, he points this out. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I'm gonna leave the last bit of seven there because I'm gonna tackle that here in a second. But I think that this is a great piece to take a look at. So God is telling them, here is what is actually happening. Let's get a little dose of reality here. Take a look in the mirror because guess what? It's not me, it is you, right? It's not me. I'm not the one changing. And what we know is that there were commandments and sacrifices, guidelines, procedures, you name it, that they were supposed to be living under, right? In the time that this book was written, they were still living under the Mosaic law. God had given commandments, right? Do this, do this, do this. And so we know that there were guidelines that he had set forth that they were supposed to be honoring. And what God is trying to continue to point out to them throughout this scripture is you are not doing it. Come on. 
Like, how clear can I be? You know, where I get frustrated too is when I think to myself that like, I have kids in my class, right? And I tell them, write your name on your paper so that way I know who it is. And guess what they don't do? Put their name on their paper. And I say, I can't give you credit if I don't know who it is. It's not that I don't want to, I just, I can't, right? And then I tell them that, and then guess what they do the very next assignment? They put their name on the paper. And I'm like, hey, guess what? It hasn't changed. You still got to do that so that I can get credit. And so I think the same thing is happening here where God is saying, guess what? I have told you over and over again what you have to do. What are the things that you have to walk in so that you can see the blessing from God? And I think it's interesting that we see that the people have forgot this. And I think it's most summed up when we take a look at Exodus 19, verse 5. For the people that uh, may have like been arguing at the time, that they may have been like, well, what are you talking about, God? Well, God's pretty clear here in Exodus 19, verse 5, where he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people's for all the earth is mine. Very clean, simple verse. Obey my voice. So what's he saying there? Do what I tell you. A lot of times we don't like to think about a God that tells us what to do because that kind of infringes on like what God, God wants me to be happy. So I think God would want me to do like kind of what, what do I want to do? So he's going to kind of be lenient with me, but no, he's not. He's saying, listen, I know best. If you've ever been around kids, if you have kids, you know this to be true, right? I know what's best for you. Listen to my voice. I love Daniel always talks about his daughter running towards the street, right? And somebody like yelling after her to stop, right? We know that our kids should listen to our voice because we know what's best for them. But we see this here that they are forgetting this, clear as day written to them, but yet they don't want to uphold their side of the bargain, So, so why is it up to this point that they are not doing it? So that's the question, right? How come the Israelites aren't following what God says? Right? You guys ever stop and think about that for a little while? Why? What was going on in their head? Literally have God coming down, telling them what to do, and then they just continue to walk, walk off. What's happening? Well, I think what's important here is if we, like I said, this piece is sandwiched between a whole bunch of stuff in the book of Malachi. And I love, I believe it's the ending of, ver, or of chapter two, right? If we look at the end of chapter two, they say that Israelites have this perspective that God delights in evildoers because he's not destroying them, right? Isn't that what the end of chapter two is really saying? Where's the God of justice? Where is he? So you're not destroying them. So what the heck is going on here? Part of the problem is, is that we start to see that the Israelites start to get a skewed perspective of what the blessing truly is that the Lord has in store for them. They're tainting it. Just like they started to taint the character of God based upon what their understanding of human characteristics are, they are starting to taint the blessing that they think they should be receiving based upon selfish desires. They wanted a blessing handed to them in a way that they thought should, or the way it should look under their conditions. They wanted to change the conditions of what was going on here. And I think that this is where we see it the most. And I remember I said I wanted to come back to the end of verse 7, right? The end of verse 7, this question is asked, right? But you say, how shall we return? right? How shall we return? And I think the best part is, as I was reading this, like I, I read it, you know, as I'm reading it for the first couple of times, I go, are they really like serious? Like, is this really the question that they're asking? How do we return? And then I read some commentaries um, and then it gave me a little bit better perspective to say that this was probably meant in a very sarcastic tone. 
when they asked, how shall we return? What they were really saying was like, really? How do we repent? We haven't done anything wrong. What have we been doing? We're doing what, we, we're doing what makes us happy, what, what we think you want for us. We're trying to chase after this blessing. So, all right, God, if we're doing it wrong, that you say we are, then what do we need to do to get your blessing back? And it's kind of interesting that they would have this sarcastic tone because I don't know about you guys, but like when I read through the first, like, uh, I don't know, about this much of my Bible, it like, it just like repeatedly beats you over the head of what you need to be doing. It's hard to escape it. So you start to wonder, were they not reading it? Was it not being studied? I didn't think about that point earlier, I guess, as I was preparing this. But maybe we do the same thing, right? I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I'm not in this as much as I should be, and I forget what he is saying to me. So then we go into what I think is the second part of this. And just so you know, by the way, if you're keeping track, I think there's four parts to Malachi. I didn't say that earlier. I'm sorry. I hope you guys can have forgiveness for me. So this is what I think goes into the second part. God provides yet another example of how they are not honoring him. Because think about this. In the book of Malachi, how easy would it have been for him to just say, okay, go back and read what I previously have for you and just start changing that, right? Because we've already learned that there's a ton of things that they could be changing, right? Just stop doing that stuff and that'll be a good place to start. But I love that God doesn't just stop there. He gives them another one. He's like, okay, you don't like what I've given you so far. Let me provide you another example of what is happening. So we get to verse eight and nine. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me the whole nation of you. Now, I think that this part is easy to kind of glance over to think about this idea of robbing God. And we tie it into tithes and the contributions. We kind of just see it all play out here. So we start to think, what is actually being talked about in this section? What is God really trying to hit at? So I think if we want to really fully understand what is going on here, we have to go back and look at the situation. So we understand that God took his people out of Egypt, right? They wandered around for a while. There was all this stuff that happened, right? I'm kind of paraphrasing this nice big story. But then we get to this place where God allows them to enter the promised land, right? And he gives them land, right? And he says, now you guys have a place. You're going to be safe. You're going to have land. You're going to be able to take care of yourselves, but I think that there's a major piece that I, I know for myself, I've overlooked this so many times to understand what exactly did it mean for God to give the land to the Israelites. I think in our perspective, and I know that for myself, when I always read that, I always think, man, that was so awesome that God just gave them something, right? That they didn't deserve, but they got it. Man, they had this land. They could go do whatever they wanted to. They went off. Some people probably became farmers. Some people probably was like, man, my dream is to be a sheep herder. And so they went off and started their own sheep herding, right? And it was awesome because they had their own place. They had their own stuff. But the problem was, is that was not what God intended. He gave them that land so that they could experience a true covenant community with God. Here's some land. Here's what you're going to do with that land. You're going to raise crops. You're going to be protected. You're going to have flocks of sheep, goats, whatever else. And with that, you are going to not be without. You're going to have everything that you need. But partly, part of this you have to understand that there was also other things that came along with it. The Levites, the priests, you gotta give to them. And the word that they use here is a tithe, right? 
We know that to mean a tenth. Give them a tenth. I need them to be taken care of. They are serving me. They are the ones sacrificing. They are the ones that are lifting sacrifices up to me so that I am praised, so that I am glorified. And they have a job to do so they can't do some of the other things to take care of themselves. So you are going to provide for them. And that's God's way of providing and giving us or the Israelites an opportunity to experience in that joy of providing. But it doesn't just stop there. It also says, right, that we know that they were not just supposed to take care of the Levites and the priests, but that they were also supposed to be taking care of the sojourners, the fatherless, the widows. God gave them this land so that they would not be without and so that they could also provide for everybody else who was in need. This is what God likes to do, right? God offers things freely to us. And he gave, gave the Israelites a chance to live in that covenant relationship, that covenant community that provides, that is a beautiful thing. And God reminds them in Leviticus 25, he says, this land shall not be sold in per- perpetuity for the land is mine. He told them, it's not yours. I'm giving it to you to be there, to experience the joy of being in relationship with me. But guess what? It is still mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So yet, the people thought they were giving something that was theirs to God. So think about this. So when it talks about this idea of tithes and contributions, right? We think about what were they offering up to God? So I love this idea that we tend to, I think, glance over what these words truly mean. So when it says, you are robbing me, So think about what robbing actually is, right? Robbing is not me having some money and then somebody asking for it and me going like, eh, I'm not gonna give that to you. Am I robbing that person? No, I'm not robbing them. It's mine. I'm not taking anything from them, right? So then what God is really pointing out here when he's using this word is saying, you are keeping something from me that is mine. You're not giving it back. I gave this to you to use, but it's mine. When I tell you to do something with it, you're supposed to do that. And I think that we forget this, and I think a lot of us don't like to hear that. I know I don't. I don't like this idea that I work hard. I put in my hours, collect my paycheck, and then God tells me it's not mine. If I'm being honest with you guys, that's hard for me to take. I don't know about you guys. I know a lot of you guys. I talk to a lot of you guys. You guys work hard. Put in long hours, long commutes. But this is what God is saying. What I gave to the Israelites, right? Everything that you guys have, that's mine, is to be offered back to me. And God's not even asking for it all from them. He's asking for a tenth, one-tenth. The rest of it you can use for yourselves. Just give me this one portion so that we can bless other people. And yet they start to lose sight of that. So what was happening then? Well... We have to understand, if you're not willing to give something away, what are you probably trying to think, right? I need more. So this is where I think the Israelites first start to fall off again, or you know, where we start to see the other piece of what God is trying to point out to them. So what is this blessing 
that God is bestowing upon them and how are they distorting it, right? So here we see that the Israelites are distorting this by looking for personal gain, right? How am I being blessed in this situation and how am I being blessed means how am I getting more for myself? And as I got to this place, I, I, you know, as I was studying, I started to think to myself, well, there's a major question for myself. So what have I taken that is supposed to be honoring of God and a chance to experience a covenant community with him and turned it into something for myself? So I'll say that again. So we think about the Israelites. God gave them the land so that they get to experience this covenant community with God. So I start to think to myself, and I hope that you guys maybe start to think this for yourselves too, is where am I taking something that is supposed to be honoring of God and a chance to experience his covenant community and turn it into something for myself? Now, I don't know about you guys, but I like to think that I'm perfect. And so I like to think first and foremost, well, I don't think there's anything that I'm doing. I think I'm giving it all back to him, right? I know for myself, and many of you guys, we know that we have quite a few teachers here, and you guys know quite a few teachers. Summer. Teachers in the summer are some of the most selfish people you will ever meet. I deserve a break. You guys have ever dealt with 100 middle schoolers over the course of nine months? You guys probably feel the same way. Deserve a break, right? But I'm given this time off for a reason. And instead of thinking about my selfish desires, thinking about my worldly reason why I get this break, wondering why in the heck did God give me a job where I get two and a half months off? Why? And I don't think it started dawning on me until a couple summers ago, and especially last summer, they started to think about this idea of, I need to start reshaping the time off that I have. I need to start reshaping this summer vacation that God has given to me to be able to experience this covenant community that he has given me a chance to be a part of. So this summer, Kelly and I, one of the biggest things that we decided to do is we said, this summer... So I'm not, so we are not selfish, so we're not doing this. Let's offer up our home, our time, and our finances. The three biggest things that I struggle with. And I'm telling you guys right now, best summer ever. Best summer. Our house was always open. Many of you guys were there, quite a bit of it, right? Our finances, if something needed to be bought, we just paid for it. Kelly and I lost a lot of money this summer, a lot of money. I don't say that to brag. It was a really hard thing for me to accept. We lost a lot of money this summer. But understanding, starting to change the perspective that that money was not mine to start with. My house that people come in and spend time in, just like the land that the Israelites had, is not my property. My name might be on the lease. Kelly's name might be on the lease, but it's not ours. God gave us that place to use to bless other people. And in blessing other people, we are honoring God. Now, not to say that I'm doing this all the time. Summer ends and then it's funny because then summer ends and now I think I need a break from that, right? Well, I gave you my summer. That's what you wanted. So now give me a break during the school year. Well, realizing that it's not what it's about. It's about figuring out how to change your paradigm of how you should be spending your time, your resources, your finances, your relationships, all of those things. I know for me, I've already slipped back into not doing that very well. My time, my time is not spent, I don't think, where it should be all the time. So then I start to think, okay, so if that's really what it is about, if that's what's happening here and God is laying this out for them, 
he's given them this problem, then what next, right? What's, what next? Well, what's awesome about God is God always gives a remedy, right? He's like, let me spell it out for you guys, since you guys haven't figured it out and everything else I've given you, right? Let me, get, let, me, let me explain this to you. So this would be part three. And part three is what I think is verses 10 through 12. So his remedy, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the flood windows of heaven and for you, or for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So he gives them a remedy, right? So let's break down this remedy. Let's see what, all, what are all the different things that are going on in this statement. So first of all, I love what he says here. Bring the full tithe to the storehouse. Why is it important that he use the word full? Well, I think this has to do with this idea that what were people doing at the time? We talked about this. They were holding things for themselves, right? But I think that we have to understand why he's using this context or why he uses full in this context is he's saying, guess what? Some people are bringing stuff. There are there are offerings being given, right? We saw that, right? We saw the idea that they were still offering sacrifices. But what did we know about those sacrifices? They were not what God wanted. They were offering blind and lame and blemished sacrifices. Well, I'm giving you something, God. Doesn't that count for anything? God's saying, no, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So we have to understand this idea that I think we still to this day think of the same thing, right? We think about those things that I kind of talked about in the last section. What are we misusing that God has given for us to honor him? And understanding that are we doing what this remedy says? Are we giving the full tithe to God? And I think it's very easy for us to get focused on the financial piece, right? But we have to look deeper than just that financial piece. Now, what I want to do is take a look at this, uh, some of like what he says in here, right? He says, bring the tithe to the store, the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby, man, this piece just hit me so tough. Put me to the test. What? I don't know if you guys have your Bibles, right? But what the great part is, is like, we're in Malachi, right? You turn three pages in my Bible, right? Three pages and we get to a verse, Matthew 4, 7. You guys remember this verse? Jesus gets taken up to the top of the temple, right? And <laughs> Satan is with him. And what does he say? Jesus said to him again, it, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What? Three pages later. Go back three pages, right? Put me to the test. So what the heck is going on here, right? I'm confused. Well, if you're confused, just so you know, I was too until I did. I, I got to know some of the actual language, and which was a great eye-opening experience for me. So what is Jesus talking about when he says that again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to your test, to the test. We have to go back to Deuteronomy 6.16, and that is what Jesus is quoting here. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Now, what in the world is he refer is being referred to in Deuteronomy? Well, what we're referring to is this situation, and a lot of you guys know the story, right? When Moses is leading them around, 
we know that there's this kind of ebb and flow of the people loving God and then wanting nothing to do with him, loving him, right? And so they get to this place where they decide they're thirsty, right? And then they decide that God's never going to provide them water and that they're going to die of thirst. And why'd you bring us out here, right? And Moses, one of Moses' responses is he says, why are you asking me this and why are you putting God to the test, right? Well, what we have to learn is that they used different words at the time for test. So the test that we see in Matthew, in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, this kind of test is trying to fabricate a situation in which we get to test if God is real or not. We make something up, right? God, if you loved me, if you're really God, I'd get this promotion. God, if you really loved me, my four-year-old would stop screaming at me. Many of you have seen Gabby at bedtime, right? What are we doing there? We're fabricating a situation to which we want God to prove himself to us. How does it benefit me? What do I want God to do for me? I'm going to claim that and then he has to prove himself to me. So then I can then say, okay, yeah, you're right. You know what, God, you, you're, you're real, right? That is different than what we see here. When we say, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, what he is referring to here is he is saying, give me a chance to prove my faithfulness to you by honoring what I have asked you to do. Have faith. Take my words, what I have said, and do them. And in doing so, I will have a chance to prove my character to you, that I follow through on what I say I will do. This is not giving the people what they want. This is not giving the people what they think their desires are. This is in accordance to God's will. Test me on something that we know is in accordance to what I am telling you. And it's awesome. Because he says, because guess what will happen if you do that? This idea of these like floodgates, the rains, the rains are going to come, right? We look back at a previous book. Hey, guy, we know, right, that, the, that there was a f- drought at the time that people, the crops weren't growing. There was not a lot of stuff going on, right? Like they were, they were reaping their harvest, but there wasn't enough for them, right? There wasn't water uh, abundantly flowing so that these crops could grow. So the first thing God says is, I'm going to open up the windows of heaven. Rain is going to come down, and that is going to be a blessing to you. The second action is he says he will also provide protection against the devourer, right? Verse 11. What's he talking about here? What is the devourer? Well, if you look back in scriptures, the word devourer gets used multiple times to kind of mean like a pest or a bug, right? And we see that what are some of the pests, the bugs that, we, that come up? It's like one of the most common would be like locusts, right? Locusts would come in and just destroy fields. But it could mean anything from caterpillars to grasshoppers to, you know, whatever. So why does God just single out these two things, right? The floodgates. Well, we, like we said, we know first and foremost that there was a drought being alluded to in Haggai. But then we also have to understand Let's go back to verse nine real quick. And we see that what does God say in verse nine? You are cursed with a curse. You're cursed. The opposite of a blessing, right? We have the opposite happening here. And where is this taken from? What is he trying to say? Well, we know that if you go back into Deuteronomy 28, I'm not gonna read it all for you guys because it's a long passage, but if you wanna check me on it, go ahead. 
Deuteronomy 28, verses 38 through 52, God lays out a very specific thing. He says, if you don't do what I ask you to do, there's a long list of things that are going to happen. And one of the big things that he talks about in there is that he says, bugs of all different kinds are going to come in and they are going to destroy your crops. They are going to eat whatever is there. They are going to make it so that you cannot reap any form of like a harvest, right? God literally tells them that. And then we see in Malachi that this is happening. It's another thing that the people are being blind to, right? God literally tells them what's going to happen if they're not following him and it's happening. So then God gives them the direct result of if they come back to him, right? I'm going to lift this curse. I'm going to rebuke the devourer and then everything will be right again, right? You guys will have your crops again. You guys on the, the, the fruits of the vine are going to be there again. Beautiful picture. And then verse 12 kind of hits home with his main point. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God is really getting at the true idea of what the blessing really is, right? People will be able to look in to this nation, to this people and say, man, what happened here? They don't, they're not lacking in anything. They're not missing out on anything. They have what they need. There's nothing eating their crops. They don't really have to protect against that, right? Something is happening here. It's different. Others will look in. So we have to think about this, right? Because the Israelites were supposed to be like this beacon of what, of who God was, right, here on earth. Others will look in and see what is going on. There was a purpose to the blessing, now, I'm going to say something here, and I'm going to try and clarify my statement, so just bear with me, right? The blessing that was to be bestowed upon them for following God's word in here was not for the people. It was not for the people. And I think some of us are going to go, wait a minute, what? so God doesn't want us to be, no, that's not what I'm saying here. But we have to understand first and foremost that this blessing that they are talking about, the rebuking of the devourer, doing all of this was not for the people. It was meant to show God's glory. If you return to me and you are faithful to what I ask of you, then I'm gonna do all of this stuff to take away all of these things that are going wrong not so that you finally feel like, okay, finally, it's not us anymore, but so that people will then have nothing to do but turn to God and say, how awesome are you? Only because of you does this happen. We talked about this idea of comfortability a lot here. And we understand that this was not a blessing to make the people feel like they had a worldly, comfortable life. It wasn't the purpose. The purpose was not to say that, guess what? We have more money, more land, bigger houses than all the people who don't believe in God, right? So that they could look to the people on the outside and kind of hold their uh, chin up a little higher than everybody else to say, we have bigger and better, right? Compared to what you guys have in the sense of our worldly possessions. And I think that this is where we see the hard-heartedness of the Israelites again, right? So we see that God gives them an example. Here's what's gonna happen and here's how the blessing will 
uh, change what you guys have, will change what you are doing. And we go into what I think is part four, which is kind of like this ending little piece. We get a glimpse into the hearts of the Israelites. So after all of this, right, I'm going to rebuke the devourer, open the floodgates of heaven for you. Nations are going to call you blessed because you're going to be a land of delight. And then he says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Again, kind of that sarcastic tone again, right? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. We see again the missing piece that the Israelites have. First and foremost, the word that they use right there is just incredible to me. You have said it is vain to serve God. So what does vain mean? Pointless, right? Useless, no value. So to them, what are they thinking, right? It's no value for me to serve God. Why? What are they looking for? Well, it, it's, it's awesome that he gives you what they are actually thinking here. Because he says, right? What is the profit of our keeping his charge? I don't think we can overlook this word of profit. What do we gain? Well, yeah, what is it for me, right? They're substituting this word profit for blessing. That's a mistake. They're looking at it wrong again. Because what we know is that when it talks about being blessed, we're talking about happiness, we're talking about true joy, right? Not what the Israelites were looking for at this time. Daniel and I have been texting back and forth over the week and something that woke me up on Wednesday night, I was like laying in my bed and haven't been sleeping well, uh, you know, was sick and coughing and everything, but I finally felt like I was sleeping and I woke up in the middle of the night. It was about 2.30 in the morning, just sat straight up. And this, this thought just kind of kept creeping in my mind enough so that I had to get up because I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I think about stuff in the night, like when I wake up and then the next morning I'm like, oh gosh, man, that was such a great point, but I don't know what it was, right? So I got up and I walked, stumbled over to the phone and I started typing it into my notes on my phone, right? So I typed it in and I had this thought, true joy cannot be fabricated, can't be built, This is what the Israelites were trying to do here. They were trying to build their joy based upon what they wanted, what they thought a blessing should look like, and prospering. True joy cannot be fabricated. We cannot change it into our own design or our own liking. We see this right in this passage where they were inserting prosper for blessings. So then my question, I guess, that I would ask, that I was asking to myself that I would ask of you is, where are we fabricating our joy? Where are we looking for God to bless us in ways that we, you know, aren't necessarily in line with what he wants, right? Kind of similar to the question I asked earlier, but I think this gets more at the heart, Right? I think, I was thinking about this last night. Where am I trying to do? True joy can't be fabricated. What's one thing that brings me joy? TV. I don't know about you guys. You guys like to watch TV? Yeah? We, I think we all like to watch TV. Why? Because we're entertained, right? <laughs> I don't know why, but then I stopped and thought about it for a second, and I was like, 
I watch a TV show and I laugh and I find joy, but what's the very next thing I want to do? Yeah, I love Netflix, right? Man, you just, three in a row before I have to tell you that I want to watch another one, right? Like, you, you know what I want. I'm not satisfied with just the one show. I need at least three. Because, you know, I'm not hitting the back button before my three shows are done, right? I'm trying to fabricate joy by watching those shows. Yet I'm obviously let down after the first one because it's not good enough for me. I have to have another one. And Kelly makes fun of me all the time because I am notorious for just powering through a show. She gets mad at me. She's like, I went to work one day, William, and you're a season ahead of me? Yeah, I wasted that much time. Dang. That sucks. Yet I'm just looking for that constant joy of watching one show after the next. And yet I'm always left wanting more. And then the show ends, and I fall into a show depression. (laughs) What do I watch next? Nothing's ever going to be as good as the show I just watched. Then I find something else, right? And then I move on. And then the same cycle happens. I'm fabricating my joy through TV. I'm trying to be satisfied with that, right? So where are we fabricating joy? Is it through sports, right? Do your emotions change when the Seahawks lose? That's just making a bad day. I've been there. Man, I'm just crabby the rest of the day. Can't believe they couldn't get a first down, right? Mad. Money. You fabricating joy through money, right? If I had a better job, paid more, I'd be happy. So I'm going to work extra hard so I get that promotion. I don't care if it costs me more time. I don't care if I don't get to spend as much time with my church family, those kind of things, because I know once I have that money things are going to get easier. Is that where we're finding joy? What about things that I think are inherently good that we turn bad? Your family. Are you trying to fabricate joy through your family? We're going to be happy and that'll be, but then you're just going to want to keep trying to fabric, redo that and we're just isolating ourselves in and never getting out. I don't think that's what we get our joy that way. I don't know, hopefully, Movies, book. I think that as we move forward, as we look through this text, we have to understand God that is his. And then we understand is that the Israelites, they were saying they didn't want to give more than that. So first and foremost, I just want to say, I just, I want us to understand out of this, the, the, the tithing piece, like ignore that piece. I'm going to go think God lowered the standard. I think he said, well, I didn't talk about it. So yeah, you don't have to do that. So God is still asking, you know, we, like, this idea that we, what you have to get yourself out of the mindset of thinking is that it's yours. Give God what is his. So then if we have people though, like we said, that say, well, I give some of it or I give my 10%. So I'm covered, right? So it's a very legalistic mindset of it, right? 10% means I'm saved. Then you're looking at it wrong too. right? What's happening here is what matters. Am I being changed because of the giving, right? We know that we get a chance to experience God's love through giving. God showed us what that looks like time and time again, gave the Israelites land that they could use, right? Gave them food when they were wandering around that they needed. Gave his only son, for us, freely gives us grace that we can accept. Models everything for us, and yet we think one-tenth too much. And I, I think that where this hits the most and kind of where I want to end up on this today is looking at two passages of Scripture. They were living under the Mosaic Law, Right? We have a new covenant with Jesus. It looks different. But there's some important things that get pointed out as we read through the Old Testament or through the New Testament. 
If you take a look at Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, oh, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What they are talking about here, what the author in Romans is saying is offer everything. Your body is the most basic thing that you have and you are supposed to give that to God. Give him everything. Guess what? Remember we said 10% in the Old Testament and I said, you know, like the bar's still there. It's actually higher. And then I love this passage in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. And there's a famous passage that some of you guys might know already, but I'm going to read this here. But whatever I gain, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from death. Love this. Driven home. I count all things, right? Count them all as rubbish. They mean nothing. So I love this picture of this idea, finalizing this thought of the things that we have are not ours right? We have to give them back to God. And then we have to understand that what we have to do is not necessarily think that like, well, what am I supposed to do? Give him all my garbage? No, that's not necessarily what this is saying. But what it's talking about is the idea that we have to give everything and count everything as lost, giving it all back to you, God, because guess what? It means nothing to me in comparison to being able to spend eternity with you to be able to share in that covenant relationship that you offer freely to me, that you have called me into. So I just, as we move forward, I just pray for us as a church, as a congregation, that we not look to fabricate our joy with the things that this world would have us buy into that we not look to try and build happiness through things that do not offer eternal happiness. His covenant is so much better and greater than that. And we get the blessing of glorifying God by showing him that we are most satisfied in him. Love that. John Piper, quote that Daniel likes to use a lot. I love that quote. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. How do we show the world that we're most satisfied in him? We show them that the things that everybody else chases mean nothing to us. We have to be that stark counterculture, counterpoint that says we are a light on a hill because we look different have to look different can't just say have to be it have to look different so i hope this week as we go out we start to look for those opportunities look for those things that we are finding our joy in and say how can we give this to god so that we can find joy in him Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for 
everything we have that we do not deserve. Father, our houses, our jobs, our relationships, our time, our lives, our breathing, every heartbeat that we have, Father, is not ours, it is yours. So we pray that you continue to show us where we are misstepping, Father. We ask that you bring to us, like you did the book in, in, in the book of Malachi, Father, where you gave the Israelites a glimpse into where they were missing the mark. Father, I pray that we continue to read this book so that we see where we are missing the mark. Because only when we see that can we start to work on that, Father, to start to seek after your truth, to seek after true joy that is only found through serving you. Father, I pray that we not be a people, we not be a church that can sit here in a sermon and say, yeah, we honor you, Father, but then go out throughout our day as if nothing has changed. Father, shape our hearts, shape our minds, shape our attitudes to be those that seek after you, to honor you above all, to give you what is truly yours, everything. We love you and we thank you, Father. Amen.